Well, how important to you is the Christian practice of baptism? What's your view of it? Big deal? Not a big deal? Absolutely essential or entirely optional? How much value do you place in baptism? Or to ask another question, would you die for it? Would you die for your views on baptism? I think today that's one of the last things Christians would die for. We've come to have a relatively low view of the importance of baptism, so we're not going to put our life on the line for it. But would it shock you if I told you that in the 17th century, more Christians died for their views on baptism than all the Christians killed in the first three centuries of the church combined? It's true. Some Some had such a high view of baptism that they were willing to die for it. And by way of introduction... I'll tell you a little bit about a group called the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were known as radical reformers, meaning they wanted to rapidly reform the church, not wait around, but they were ready to get rid of all of the outdated Catholic practices and beliefs that were wrong. But their radical reforms sometimes put them into conflict with fellow Protestants. And this took place over their total rejection of infant baptism. Justification is by faith alone, and therefore they believe that the rite of baptism was to be administered only after faith. You don't enter the new covenant after your first birth, but only after your second birth, your your new birth. Other Protestants weren't ready to accept this yet. So ingrained was this Catholic rite of infant baptism. But tired of waiting for reform, two disciples of the reformer Zwingli decided to take matters in their own hands. And so in 1525, they baptized one another as adults. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but back then, this was illegal. To refuse to baptize infants was heretical, and to re-baptize an adult was seen as seditious. These Anabaptists, as they were labeled, which means re-baptizers, were seen as dangerous rebels to the common order, and laws were quickly passed against them. And so just two years later, 1527, that's just 10 years after Luther sparked the Reformation. The first person was martyred, the first Anabaptist was martyred simply for his views on believers' baptism. His death sentence was drowning, which they mockingly referred to as a third baptism. But still, the Anabaptist movement grew, it spread throughout Europe. More were convinced of a believer's baptism, but they were always heavily persecuted, both by the Catholics and even fellow Protestants. Thousands and thousands were martyred. One famous account tells of a man named Dirk Willems in Holland. 1569, Willems was arrested in Holland by the Catholic Church because he had been rebaptized himself and he was rebaptizing others after their faith. But he was condemned to be burned at the stake. But he managed to escape. And so he fled for his life. A thief catcher was hired to chase him and, and a chase ensued. He caught up to Willems. In a desperate attempt to escape, he decided to cross a frozen stream. Willems made it through, but the thief catcher followed. He was a bigger man and he fell through the ice. Naturally, he cried out for help. But the only one around was Willems, the man he was chasing. Willems thought about fleeing for his life and just leaving the thief catcher to die. But he was compelled by what Christ said to love your enemies. So he went back and he rescued him, the one who was sent to to bring him in. The thief catcher was very thankful and he was ready to let him go. But by that point, other authorities had already caught up to them. Willems was rearrested, sent back to prison, and thereafter he was burnt at the stake. And countless others were martyred like this simply for clinging to a biblical view of baptism. Why do I bring all this up? Simply to impress upon you the fact that throughout church history, baptism has been seen as a far more important subject than it is today. I mean, capturing the right view and practice of baptism was seen as a matter of life and death. Baptism was not trivial. And reading the scriptures, you likewise get the sense that Baptism is preeminently important. It is a big deal. But so many, really, when you think about it, treat it as kind of like a trivial afterthought. This needs to change. The Lord only left behind two ordinances for the church until he returns, and baptism is one of them. So you think you'd want to get that right. 
No, it's no longer an issue of martyrdom, but we've swung the pendulum to the other extreme where many in the church today can't even be bothered to get baptized. They will go years in the church as Christians, but they will perpetually put off what was meant to be the first baby step of following Christ, which is to be baptized. Many other Christians have been baptized as believers, but they kind of think nothing of it. It never enters their mind. It's just kind of like that thing they did all those years ago. And ask them why they got baptized, and they'll respond, well, you know, because you're supposed to. It's like what Christians are supposed to do. Jesus said so. But then if you follow up and ask them, why did Jesus say so? Why did he command this? You get no answer. They really have no idea. Do you know, if a new believer were to come up and ask you why they should get baptized, what would you say to him or her other than because Jesus said so? The fact of the matter is widespread ignorance pervades the church today on the true significance of baptism. There have been no serious baptism controversies in the past 300 years. No one's dying for their beliefs on baptism anymore. And therefore, it's just something we take for granted. The true meaning of baptism is not taught. It's not studied. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Like, yeah, we believe in it and it matters, but it's not that big of a deal. But neglecting baptism is to our own demise because it, it is a bigger deal to the Christian life than you might think. And so today I want to help you think through this topic biblically, answering the question, why should you get baptized? And there's two practical reasons why I want to address this issue now. And for one, I, I just get asked this question all the time. Just about every time we do a membership class here at the church, someone will ask who hasn't been baptized, like, why do I need to get baptized? Which is a perfectly good question. We do require a believer's baptism to become a member at this church. We're not Anabaptists by descent. We're not Baptists by denomination. But we do believe the scriptures are clear on this point. But it's a perfectly good question, though, and most Christians simply have never been taught on it, never studied it. And so I've been wanting to put together, you might say, a deeper meditation on this question for some time, and that it might serve as a lasting resource for newer believers looking for answers. But the second reason this topic, topic is fitting right now is because we just finished witnessing the baptism of Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel. Going through Matthew, verse by verse, we just finished Matthew three thirteen through 17, where as we read this morning again, we saw Jesus himself go down into the cold waters of the Jordan and, and be baptized underwater. And he had no need for this water baptism of repentance but Jesus submitted himself to the baptism of John that he might fully identify with the sinners he came to save. And that baptism marked the beginning of Christ's active ministry. It was a watershed moment. And although Christ's baptism by John is not quite the same as the church's baptism, Christ's baptism still anticipates and looks forward to the church's practice of water baptism. That's not something we got into during our time in Matthew 3, but it's a worthy detour. Now, why does the church today practice water baptism? What's it really for? What does it mean? Why do we do this? What's so special about dunking a new Christian under some water? Yes, the correct Sunday school answer is because Jesus commanded it. Absolutely. But we still want to ask, like, why did he command it? Why did he choose to make this the identifying initiation ritual for the new disciple. He didn't have to. He chose to. Why? You, Christian, need to know this. If you're here as a believer and you've never been baptized, you need to listen, learn, and then get baptized. The next available opportunity. If you're here as a believer and you already have been baptized, you still need to listen and learn because there's lasting value to your baptism that you need to come to appreciate. So I want to help you see this and to give you three main reasons you should be baptized. The last one being the main one. Three reasons you should get baptized. The last one being the strongest, the main one. So let's go through some of these first. We will start off at the bottom, straightforward, to obey Christ. Number one, to obey Christ. It's not 
the deepest reason, but we still need to establish it as a perfectly legitimate reason. If you have no idea what baptism is for or what it signifies, but the only reason you went ahead and did it was just to obey Christ, well, you know what? You did well. Because at the end of the day, God is glorified by the childlike faith of his people, which leads to obedience. I mean, we often ask our children to do things they don't fully understand the reason for, like brush your teeth. And we'd be very happy if they wanted to learn all the reasons behind that command. That would only be to their benefit. But at the end of the day, we're looking for their obedience. And so if you have been baptized simply in obedience to God, Praise God for that. You've done well. Because this was Christ's command. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 28, the last chapter of Matthew, if you want to follow along. And Matthew is writing his gospel that we might come to see the identity of Jesus as the King of Kings. The King has come, and with him, the inauguration of his kingdom. The King will be coming back, and with him, the fullness of his kingdom. But until then, the king has commissioned his people to be his instruments in populating the kingdom. We are to be making kingdom citizens by making disciples. And he outlines that in this commission, just for the whole church, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me on, in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore... Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The main command in this commission is to make disciples. And then you have three participles which modify and explain how you do that. Going, baptizing, and then teaching. Having gone into the nations... You are to then preach Christ's gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. And God will use that message to bring people alive as they believe. That the seed will find some good soil and it will spring to new life. A new disciple will be made. And then your first order of business thereafter is to to water them in, so to speak, to, to baptize them. The rite of water baptism It's something we've seen back in Matthew 3 for several weeks now, talking about John's baptism and Christ's baptism. It refers to this practice of immersing a new disciple underwater. The significance of this act we're getting to. But just as Jesus himself was immersed fully under the water, so he wants all who follow him to similarly be baptized. This baptism is to take place in the name of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, where the new disciple is is fully aligning himself with the one true God who exists in three equal persons. Only after this baptism is the new believer then, verse 20, taught to observe all that Christ commanded. Notice Jesus didn't say, make disciples, then teach them to observe everything I commanded, and then only after that, baptize them. No, baptism, it's not for the spiritually mature. You don't need a master's in theology before you get baptized. You don't need to know anything except the gospel. Instead, baptism is meant to be the first baby step in the way of Christ. It marks the beginning of the Christian walk, and it's followed after that by an entire life of knowing and obeying King Jesus. This commission of Jesus was meant for all the church, And it was immediately put into effect by the apostles. So you read the book of Acts and and the pattern immediately forms. The gospel is preached. People are pierced to the heart by the gospel. They're convicted by it. They yield to it in faith. And right away thereafter, they're baptized time and time again. And although baptism has been variously understood and, and practiced, it has been carried on by Christians ever since. And that's pretty remarkable to think about. There's been this unbroken chain of baptism from today all the way back to Christ himself. Like Rod alluded to this morning, there's there's not that much in our modern lives that connects us to the actual life of Jesus. It's 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. Life is so different. But he was baptized and 
We are baptized in the same way. Though we have the luxury today of, of heated pools, what we do today is pretty much what the first Christians were doing 2,000 years ago in obedience to Christ. And so, yes, it is worth establishing that the first reason you should get baptized is to obey Christ. Yes. But let's keep going. We want to press on to maturity, moving beyond the elementary teaching about Christ, like Hebrews 6.1 says. It's only good and right to then ask, okay, well, why did King Jesus command that all of his disciples be baptized like he was? We had some other reasons in mind that we can discern. Secondly, we would say to picture Christ. To picture Christ. Baptism is a ritual. It's a symbolic ritual. And it's infused with meaning. It's not unlike God did with Israel all throughout the Old Testament. He gave them tons of symbols and rituals, like their sacrificial system. Israel's symbols and rituals did not save them, but they all in some way depicted their God who saves. In the church today, we don't have very many symbols and rituals anymore. We're not under the old covenant. The new covenant really just has two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They likewise do not save or contribute to salvation, but they do have a serious God-ordained teaching value. They're meant to picture Christ. Now, before talking about what baptism teaches, though, I think it's just good to pause and appreciate the way of the master. Jesus came to show us the truth, but he didn't reveal it in such a way that, that only the intellectual elites could understand. His teaching was for the common man. He wanted everyone to be able to understand his words. And that's why he so often taught using object lessons. He explained the word and the ways of God using simple objects like trees and sheep and bread and grapes, water. He took that which was known and familiar and used it to make plain that which was unknown and unfamiliar. Sometimes, though, when Jesus really wanted to drive a lesson home, he would involve people in his object lessons as witnesses or participants. From sight to smell, sound, touch, taste, he would engage the senses to leave a deep imprint of truth on the soul. And so, for example, you see this primarily in the Lord's Supper where Jesus infused new meaning into the already symbolic Passover supper. He took a piece of bread, literally in his hands, and he made it a symbol of his body, his life. But it didn't stop there. He then broke it and made them all eat it. I mean, that, that's an impression that the life of their master had to be broken and given over for them to be saved. And they had to partake of this bread of life. He did the same with the cup representing his blood. His blood spilled out, his life given for the forgiveness of their sins. This was the cost of their salvation. And likewise, it's only one cup. They all had to drink from the cup. They had to partake of his work. There's a ton more behind the symbolic ritual of communion. That's not our subject this morning. But the point is, Jesus intentionally wanted his disciples and us to rehearse these truths until he returns by participating in them. He wanted these object lessons to be acted out perpetually because, well, he knows we're so prone to forget. We're so quick to forget him, his work for us, who we are now in him. But these object lessons remind us and they anchor our souls in truth. And that's what you get with baptism too. It's another symbolic ritual infused with spiritual truth meant in part to deeply impress upon us what Jesus did for us and who we are now in him. You may respond, but, but hey, baptism, that's like a one-time thing. You do it once and never again. So that doesn't sound too valuable as an object lesson. And that's true. You personally really only experience baptized once. But being the initiation right for all disciples, as often as new disciples enter the church, you bear witness to baptism again 
and again and again. Each time, it, it's still meant to evoke truth. Speaking of your baptism, though, when talking about engaging the senses, few things are as jarring as being dunked underwater by someone else. The act leaves a deep imprint on you, one that you never forget. I've never met a Christian who has forgotten their adult baptism experience. Like, oh, I, I totally forgot about it. I don't think so. It sticks with you on purpose. I remember my baptism well is in the winter of 2004, my senior year of college. I was saved fall of 2001. I was one of those young, immature Christians who didn't know better. Didn't think about baptism, never taught on baptism, out of sight, out of mind, just not an issue until I finally learned about it. Then it was time to to go under the water. Even when I was baptized, though, I, I can't say I fully understood the picture. But speaking of, what is the picture of Christ in baptism? Well, it's of his death, burial, and resurrection. You probably already knew that, but it it goes one step further because baptism is not just about picturing what Jesus did for us. More specifically, it's picturing how we are entering into what he did for us, how we are partaking of what he did for us. Jesus is the Savior, the one and only. But when you get baptized, you're now identifying that he is your Savior. It's true that water baptism doesn't save, but there's another type of baptism that saves. It's known as baptism into Christ, a.k.a. our union with Christ. Our union with Christ is the fountainhead from which all of the blessings of Christ's atonement flow to us. And so as we are immersed in Christ by faith, so to speak, we're united to him. His death becomes our death. His rise to new life becomes our rise to new life. And that's what water baptism pictures. If you want, you can turn to Romans 6. That's where the Apostle Paul pops the hood on these, on this, the picture behind baptism. All throughout Romans 6, we'll just turn our attention to verses 3 and 4 at first. Where he questions us. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You know, our actual practice of dunking people underwater does go all the way back to John the Baptist. But now that Christ has come and he's finished his work, it takes on new significance. Baptism is no longer an act of anticipation, but fulfillment. The Savior, he's already come. He's finished his atoning work. He's now able to actually make us clean. So, When you come to him by faith, you're you're clean, you're washed. And water baptism is now a dramatic portrayal of what happened when we believed in him. I mean, for one, your old self died. Your old self in sin died. You died when you came to faith in Christ. That person you used to be, enslaved to sin being held captive by your lusts and your passions, exchanging the truth of God for some lie, that person died under the water. And with him, so went our debt. I mean, all of our our sin and our shame was wiped away in Christ. And just think about that. Think about all the guilt you carried with you and the weight of your conscience that plagued you But in Christ, that's all gone. That's what his word says. You you were washed clean. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There won't be any there. No unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. The thing is, we're all unrighteous. But he says in verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of God of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the spirit of our God. He washed us clean. And going further, not only did our old self die, 
But thankfully, we didn't stay in the grave. With Christ and like Christ, we rose to new life. He has now created new life within us, giving us a new heart and a new love for God that wasn't there before. He's opened our eyes to the glory of God in the face of Christ. We too once thought that the cross was foolishness and Christianity was a fool's errand. But now we've come to truly know that, that King Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. None of this happens in baptism. Your washing and your renewing didn't take place during your water baptism, but in the moment of your faith. But still, talk about a powerful object lesson. And it's meant to leave a lasting impression on our souls of what the Lord did for us as we came to him. And the waters of baptism are meant to so closely evoke what happened to you in the moment of your faith that the Apostle Paul can say this. He says, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Acts 22 verse 16. It's just so valuable to the Lord that we live in light of this life-changing truth. And really, that's the whole point of Romans 6. He asks in verse 1, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or rather, verse 2. We've died to sin. How should we still live in it? Well, we shouldn't. We're saved. We're not yet glorified. We are new. We still carry around the sinful flesh. But the difference is we're no longer enslaved to sin. Like it says down in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We really did die to sin, its power, its penalty. And we really were made alive in Christ, given his spirit, enabled to follow him. And so, so walk in him. Verse 12 of Romans 6, he says, Therefore, in light of all this, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of, of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, because you are, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You know, it's one thing to read and study Romans 6. You should learn about all these spiritual truths, but it's another to act them out. And again, the, the Lord knows we're a simple people. We can't handle too much. And even then, we're going to forget it. We're prone to forget. And so that's why when it came to the most significant truths of what he did for us and who we are now in him, he wanted us just to to act them out, to rehearse these truths in baptism, that we would always carry around some sense of who we are in Christ. And these truths are then meant to be the fuel for our new living. I mean, could this be why perhaps you still are letting sin reign in your body and you're obeying its lust because you've you've forgotten who you are in Christ. You're not that old self anymore. You're alive. Live like it. Let your mind be renewed by what's true and live like it. And hopefully the picture of baptism itself can help you do that. It pictures Christ. We're still not done though. The Lord gave us just two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're, they're going to be even deeper. And I think when you keep drilling, you arrive at what is the ultimate significance to baptism. One layer deeper, why should you get baptized? Thirdly now, to identify with Christ. To identify with Christ. <clears throat> In accordance with obeying Christ and picturing Christ, Baptism is how you identify with Christ. Okay. (laughs) You saw that. I saw that. I guess the Lord wanted me to be a little bit louder there. This is how you identify with Christ. Okay. But here we're going to lean on what we learned about Christ's own baptism in Matthew 3. Because, again, although the church's water baptism is not one and the same with 
John's water baptism. It was rooted in it. It's, it comes out of it. You have to recall from our study, quick recap, why was Jesus himself baptized by John? Jesus had absolutely no need for John's baptism. That was a baptism for repentance. And Jesus was sinless. He did not need to, to go through this symbol of repentance. He did not need to prepare his heart for the kingdom. He was the king of the kingdom. Still, Jesus compelled John to go along with it. Why? The main reason was to identify with the sinners he came to save. We learned that this word for baptism, baptizo, when it's used in a, in a sacred sense, carries the idea of identification. The whole ritual of baptism was about identification. God told John to baptize the brokenhearted that they might identify with sin and repentance. And while it's very true that Jesus had no need to identify with sin and repentance for himself, he wasn't doing this for himself. He didn't come to earth for himself. He didn't minister for himself. He didn't die on the cross for himself. His entire ministry was substitutionary. And so accordingly, he he was not being baptized for himself. But as our substitute, it was the father's will that the son identify with the sinners he came to save, not just at the end of his ministry on the cross, but even at the beginning of his ministry, symbolically in baptism. This is what was behind Christ's own baptism by John in, in Matthew 3, as we learned. But here's the thing. As Jesus came and he lived, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead. But still, not all are saved. Not everyone receives the benefits of his substitutionary work. So how do you? How do you receive his atonement? How, how are you saved by this Christ? And the answer here is, By identifying with him. He came first to identify with you, sinful man. He did this by by first taking on a fully human nature. Though unstained with sin, he identified with sinners. Again, beginning and the end of his ministry, from the baptism to the cross. He identified with you fully and paid for your sins. But now for us to be saved by this Savior, we need to identify with him with his death, his resurrection, that they become effectual for us. Okay, so how do you do that? How do we identify with Jesus? The answer here is, it's not by baptism, it's by faith and faith alone. Galatians 2.20, a powerful verse. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. As we said before, we are united to Christ just by faith, by faith alone. Jesus came as a second Adam to head up a new race, a race of the redeemed. All those who would fly his banner and call upon his name by faith. That's what it means to be a Christian, a Christ follower. And so, as important as baptism is, we're not going to cross some line and and say that it saves us or contributes to our salvation. It doesn't. We have to get that straight. Only faith truly unites us to Christ and saves us. But, speaking of baptism, that, that doesn't mean it's worthless. This is where the ritual of baptism comes back in as a symbol. We already established how it pictures what Christ did for us. But on an even deeper level, it symbolizes and commemorates our identification with Christ. It's the God-ordained, Christ-commissioned, Spirit-empowered means by which we mark our identification with Christ. I want to explain that more, but to help, why don't we use some of our own object lessons just to channel the teaching nature of Jesus to help you make sense of what this means. I want you to think of a marriage ceremony. The marriage ceremony doesn't make a marriage. It's just a ceremony. What's a marriage? A marriage is a union of two people for life and a change in their legal status. Before God, a marriage is marked by vows, by covenant-making vows. Before the state, a marriage is marked by a marriage license. That's what it takes to be married. 
no ceremony is required at all. You don't have to have a marriage ceremony to be married. Some actually forego it, but most want to have a ceremony. Why? Well, it's the main way of going public with their marriage. They're not ashamed of their union. They're happy about it. They want others to know of their new status. A big crowd doesn't have to be involved. But the fact is, their marriage is not done in secret. It's not hidden. The ceremony is an open declaration and celebration of their union, and it marks the beginning of their new life together. And that's pretty close to what baptism was meant to be. It's a ceremony, kind of like a wedding. The father of the groom, God the Father, ordained that this ceremony would take place between his son Christ and his bride, the church, and all members of it, commemorating the beginning of their new life in him, their identification with him, their union with him, their new status in him. They were lost. Now they're found. They they were dead. Now they're alive. Baptism pictures this, celebrates it, and commemorates your identification with Jesus. Now He's now my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my head. In baptism, you're going public with your faith, openly declaring that you have identified fully with Christ. Now, as a side note, this does not mean you have to have a crowd at your baptism. Scripture never actually mandates baptism as a public spectacle. Some were done in private, like a private wedding ceremony. But it's public in the sense that it's not hidden away. It's not kept a secret. It's, it's made known. In reality, though, most people naturally want to invite others to see, to witness their baptism. Because like a wedding ceremony, they're not ashamed. They want others to celebrate this new status with them. And the church of God, those others who have been baptized, are very happy to do so. To join that celebration. Now we can add a second related object lesson here. Take it a bit further. Not only is baptism kind of like a marriage ceremony. But it's also kind of like your wedding ring. Like we said, what makes a marriage are the vows. The, the covenant promises before God to live forever united to another person. After those vows though. In a typical wedding ceremony. Couples then exchange rings. And these rings are purely cultural. They don't make you married. They're just a symbol. A single person can slip on a wedding ring. It doesn't make them married. And a married couple can leave their rings off. It doesn't nullify their marriage. The whole point, though, is that those who are married want to wear their wedding ring because it's a symbol of their commitment to their spouse, their identification with their spouse. It's a well-known symbol that your status has changed from single to taken. And you want that to be known. And this too is kind of like baptism. It, It doesn't make salvation. Only faith does. But after you trust in the promises of God by faith comes this symbol, baptism. And it symbolizes that you're married. You're united to Christ. You've identified with him. A spiritual union has taken place. And yeah, it's possible for an unsaved person to get baptized. It doesn't mean anything. It's possible for a saved person to forego baptism. does not nullify their salvation. But for those who have made an earnest profession of faith and who've committed to follow the Lord Jesus for the rest of their lives, They're not ashamed to go through this ceremony, this symbol of their union with Christ. Ask just about any engaged woman. She'll tell you that the marriage ceremony is a big deal. It's just wrapped up in the love of this new union. And so it is with God. Baptism is important to God because it shows obedience to Christ. Yes, it's important to God because it pictures Christ. Yes, but it's most important because it's simply wrapped up in the love of this new union with Christ. It communicates our identification with him. And the Lord knew we needed that because unlike a wedding, we haven't even seen our spouse. We've not seen the Lord Jesus. We believe in him by faith. We've not seen 
our groom. Also, this, this new birth he speaks of is unseen. You can most definitely sense it, but rather invisible forces are, are taking place at salvation. But through baptism, the Lord determined to, in a way, make visible a whole host of spiritual truths and realities that have taken place. And so in response to all this, all that we've, we've learned about the significance of baptism, what should you do? Well, you should get baptized. If you profess Christ and you haven't already done so, well, now it's time for you to do so without any further delay. There's no legitimate reason for delay other than lack of water. And if you've already been baptized, well, live in light of it. And as you witness your next baptism, let it kindle afresh these thoughts in your heart that you belong to Jesus. You fly his banner. You've taken his name at the end of your name. And so live like it. And speaking of taking his name, I think it might be the best way to think about the implications of our new identity in Christ. Because after all, did not Jesus command that we were to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? Did not 1 Corinthians 6.11 say that we were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? As you are saved and baptized, as you are united to Christ, he gives you his name. Do you realize that? Your identity change comes with a name change, which is customary for the bride. You are now called Christian, which means Christ follower. That, that's who you are in the deepest sense. That's now your, your deepest, strongest identity above all others. You're a Christian. But you need to understand it. It's not a small thing for the Lord to give his name away. He does not do that lightly. It comes with some serious implications. If you're going to take his name by faith and commemorate that by baptism, it's going to come with some implications. And just to finish up, to, to, by way of application, I want to give you five quick implications of taking the name of Christ in salvation, in baptism. Five implications of taking the name of Christ. And first, Jesus gives you his name that you might live like him. He gives you his name that you might live like him. His main command to his disciples is simply this, follow me. Just get that straight. You'll get everything else straight. Just follow him. We are his bond servants. We're called to live like him. That's only for our good. He leads us in the path of peace, but you got to walk that path. Matthew 7 warns of many people who claimed the name of Jesus, but in the end, they were cast out of his presence because they, they never walk like him and they prove their claim was false. If you're going to take his name, you must walk in the light as he himself is in the light. And so are you doing that? Do you bear any evidence, any fruit in your life that you have new life? That with Christ, you died. That old self died and you have risen to new life. In contrast to false believers, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.19. He says, the Lord knows who, those who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. You, you committed to follow Jesus for life, so are you committed to, to living like it? Secondly, Jesus gives you his name that you might represent him. The name of Christ is exclusive to his bride. He doesn't give it to anyone else but his bride, the church. The church, though, is it's a corporate body. It's open to all. All who, what? Who call upon the name of the Lord. Acts 4.12, there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Romans 10.13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him whom they've not heard? And so the Lord in this age has commissioned you, all of you who take his name, you've been commissioned, whether you know it or not, or think about it or not, you've been commissioned to represent his name, to share his name, to take his name to the nations. Whether you're crossing the ocean or crossing your street, you're to take his name out there, to fly his banner, share the name of Christ and his gospel. 
Are you ashamed of his name? Do you kind of hide it, keep it secret because you're scared. You're ashamed of your baptism and, and that open identification. You belong to Christ. Or do you bear it? If you do, yes, it does mean you will suffer some persecution. The Lord promised that. They persecuted him. They will persecute all those who take his name. Just like he said in John 15, 21. He says, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. And he was talking about persecution. That's just, that's just a little part of being united to him. It's the fellowship of his sufferings. But the benefit of eternal life far outweighs the momentary cost of affliction. Represent his name. Share it to others. Third, Jesus gives you his name that you might be one with his people. That you might be one with his people. Ephesians 4, 4 through 5 says, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We who are united to Christ by faith are made into one people. And we're united by one baptism. Which means that now we all have the same name. We all have the same last name. We used to be divided, known and and divided by a host of different names. Family names, tribal names, national names, ethnicities, skin colors, you name it. But all these names and identities have been superseded by one, Christian. And he did this that we might start to experience the joy of oneness the Father has with the Son. And so functionally, what part are you playing in preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Are you partaking and participating in the oneness of the church or not? He gave you his name that you might. Fourth, Jesus gives you his name that you might take comfort in him. That you might take comfort in him because at the end of the day, we're still sinners. Until we're glorified, a residue of sin still remains and it will lead us astray many times. But the Lord Jesus, in part, has given us his name that we might recall we're forgiven. We were washed. That's not a license from sin. Far from it. And we know we always must meet our sin with repentance every time. But as you do so, you're meant to be comforted and encouraged that, well, you've you've already been forgiven because of that, that name at the end of your name now, Christian. Because you're in Christ, you've already been forgiven. You're not meant to then stay down and wallow in your sins and failures. But as you repent, turn to Christ again, anew, just take all confidence in his success because he paid it all. As far as the East is from the West, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, we're washed and he wants us to live in that confidence. And so as often as you recall your own baptism or you witness another baptism, you should remember that you similarly have been washed clean by, by this Savior and then be encouraged. Just like Ephesians 5.26 says of Jesus, speaking of what he did for his bride, the church, he cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Not because we're good enough or even good, Not because we're sinless or even close, but just by his grace and his work. The Lord Jesus will see to it that his bride is wearing white on the day of his consummation. His grace started you. His grace will finish you. You're meant to find comfort and then power in that assurance that we've been washed. We've been forgiven. So let's seek him. Speaking of that coming day, though, lastly, fifth, Jesus gives you his name that you might wait for him. It gives you his name that you might await for him. Because in reality, we are betrothed. We still await the fullness of the coming of our Savior. He promised he will return for his bride and his people. And for those united to him, how can we possibly think he won't make good on that promise? He is coming back. He is returning. And he calls on all of his people who take his name just to remain faithful to him 
until he returns. So don't, don't cheat on him. Don't go astray. Don't go after other gods. Don't go after other idols. Remain true to him. Remember that because of his faithfulness, the scriptures say this. Just listen, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Because of what he did, it says, For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is his name. It's the name of our Savior. The name now we get to bear. And so bear it well. All these thoughts and more, all these implications flow from our union with Christ. But the Lord Jesus knew that that we needed our identification with him just so deeply planted in our hearts. And so he, he passed it down to us through baptism. He came first being baptized for us to identify with us. And now he asks us to follow, to be baptized, to identify with him. Jesus knew that we would just live differently if we could truly realize who we are in him, our identity in him. And I pray our meditation this morning has helped you do just that. And every time you think of baptism or witness of baptism, that your, your new identity in Christ would just grow deeper and deeper. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do give you thanks and praise this morning as we reflect on your baptism, which you handed down, transformed, and gave to the church. In a way, like our wedding ceremony, a time to commemorate that we are now in you, with you, united to you. There's a great mystery here and a marvel, but as our eyes are open to it, and as we understand it more, I pray It does elicit from us these responses of worship, of of right and holy living, of of evangelism. We are a people who are fundamentally summed up by by this phrase, in Christ. We are Christians. I pray here this this morning, Lord, none of us are ashamed by that name. But we, we take it happily and boldly and gladly because it represents our salvation, our eternal salvation. Keep these truths fresh in our mind as we think of our own baptism or, or witness another. It may truly deepen our understanding of who we are in Christ. That is meant to be a fuel for how we live and to keep it ripe in our minds, at the front of our minds at all times. We are Christ's people. And as we leave here this morning, may we remember that and live like that. In his name we pray. Amen.